Hi, and welcome to Walla Moms, where we say everything that you can't say in Portland. Today, we have a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Jennifer. She worked with the Gang Violence Reduction Unit, which has since been disbanded, most particularly by City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, who declared it to be a racist organization. Jennifer also works with private security firms. This is a timely topic. She will explain why those private security firms are a force for good. It's timely because Oregon Public Broadcasting has been doing a lot of articles lately about private security firms as concerning painting them as entities that are ripe for potential abuse and lack of oversight. Jennifer will explain why she thinks private security firms are a force for good. She will not provide her last name or specifically what she does professionally because she does live in Portland and she works downtown. And as we all know, in downtown Portland, if you say something that the far left doesn't like, they will tend to respond with violence, and because the police are demoralized and defunded in the city of Portland, there's really nothing that will or can be done, as evidenced by Mayor Wheeler's condo being set on fire in Dan Ryan's house. He's a city commissioner being vandalized no less than seven times with impunity. Jennifer realizes that she is not a city commissioner, nor is she mayor, and if she calls the police, nobody's going to come help her. She would have to utilize one of those private security firms that she uses with her clients that she works with, and I think she'd rather avoid that for the sake of her mental health and that of her family. She is a former far-left Democrat. She participated in the Women's March against Trump, and she has found herself politically at odds with the current Democratic culture, but she's not ready to sign on with the Republicans. She remains committed to her time working against the Trump presidency. She will speak about her fond memories with the DC Women's March against the Trump presidency, and she has never, nor will she ever vote for Trump. However, she is not politically at home with most anything that's going on in Portland, Oregon, and she's going to explain all of that to us. Coming up, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your support. Please tell a friend. Here's Jennifer. So we're here with Jennifer today. She's a high-profile professional. She has moved from the far left to I think, would you characterize it as, as centrist, Jennifer? I, I would. I would say that is where I am politically at this. Well, let me, let me say, I don't think my views have changed all that much in the past, say, 10 years. I think the Democratic Party and the platform has changed so much and has shifted so far left that I no longer identify with the viewpoints and policy of the Democratic Party. Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, well, I feel like I would have, this evolution would have happened earlier if Trump had not been elected. I was so, like many people, I was so distraught when that happened and confused and really re-examining, you know, sort of the raging misogyny that I felt happened and the fact that Bernie didn't pull out earlier, 
Um, and I was so focused, like many other people, on getting Trump out of office that I wasn't taking the time to look at what the Dems were doing. Um, the Women's March was a big eye-opener for me. I was so excited about the Women's March, and which in Oregon, by the way, was started by two uh, Eastern Oregon rural women who, if, if you know anything, you know that being a woman in rural areas is much harder than being a, rural, a woman in urban areas. Um, and they were basically forced out by a group of women. Uh, the leader was a young black woman with no experience. I think she was in her 20s, who lived in West Lynn, was married to a white guy, had no administrative experience, uh, who took over and it became this racial issue to the point where she decided towards the end, right before the march, that white, all the white women should, should stand in the back, should march in the very back to let women of color uh, go first. And as you know, you know, Portland does not have a, a high population of people of color, it's just what it is. There's not a lot of Jewish people, there aren't a lot of black people. And, and you're Jewish, um, right? I'm Jewish, yeah. And, um, and all of these words that I had never heard before because I'm 50, almost 51, and so I'm right at this generational gap where I was hearing all these words that I didn't know what they meant, constantly being attacked if I even asked what something meant. If I asked what something meant, I was told that uh, people were too exhausted to have to educate a fragile white woman. I was called fragile all the time. And so I ultimately decided to fly to Washington, D.C., and I did the Women's March there. I didn't want to be part of the Portland Thing, and that's really what sort of my where my evolution began. How did the women's march in D.C. differ, if at all, from the women's march in Portland? Uh, well, there were still, from the leadership perspective, there were still some of that. I mean, they had some really controversial anti-Semitic speakers, and as you probably know, unfortunately, the when you say they, do you mean march, Portland or D.C.? No, the national, okay. the national leadership, um, they forced, the woman who started the whole thing was Jewish, and they forced her out. There was a lot of anti-Israel sentiment. And oh, I see. It was this, it was this idea that, that disenfranchised people couldn't be anti-Semitic, so we were expected not to respond or not to fight back. But the people at the march in D.C., it was a totally different experience. Everybody just came together. There was no security because there didn't have to be. Um, there was no racial divide. It was amazing. I mean, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And I hmm. was with a bunch of, uh, of my husband's family, women from my husband's family who, are all, who all live in D.C. And it was... I'm so glad that I did that. But but that was really the shift where I was looking at Portland like, what's going on here? Um, I mean, I have a colleague who's older than I am, but she was the first uh, woman in a state to wear pants in her profession. I mean, this is a, a badass who's really paved the way. She's a lawyer. Or... She's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, and she's a lesbian and, and is from a, from a devoutly religious family had to go through a lot in her life. And I kept thinking about her when 
when they sent out the uh, message that white women were expected to stand in the back of the march. I just, I, that's not okay. White women, white people, we can't save anybody. I, I don't, I don't know. Well, and it wasn't a BLM march. It was a no. women's march, right? Right. So it was, right. it was almost like they were engaging in a hierarchy of identity categories. That, a hierarchy exactly that they right. determined, uh, like like of identity categories and who was, who who was in an identity category that put them in a in that situation a higher up, they would say in a higher up position because they're more oppressed, I suppose, because their intersectionality of oppression. There just seems to be this. You know, sort of rage. It, it's interesting. I, you would think that if that the, that the group that disenfranchised people would be focused on would be white men, right? Because I mean, historically, white men have always had the most power, have you know, run all of the institutions and the corporations. But I don't see that. I see it time and time again being directed at white women mm -hmm. um, like with the ki with the karen epithet yes yeah you don't why are there never any, any reports of of men and by the way I mean, as you know these karen stories have turned out to be completely false narratives right liberal institutions like the new york times have intentionally uh, mischaracterized events like the New York, uh, the Central Park Karen story, completely a different animal than what I thought had happened. Yeah, um, Camille Foster did, and uh, Barry Weiss did a great podcast on that that I'll link in the show notes. And that was that was what I heard. That was what I listened to. Yeah, that was mind blowing. I, it was mind blowing, and it was the same thing um, with the. Uh, the Rittenhouse trial, yeah. I, because I didn't follow the case when it happened. Uh, I assumed this was a white supremacist that had, tramp, you know, had come over state lines with this gun, who had no ties to Wisconsin or Kenosha, because that's what the media said. And it was, and then I did follow the trial, and it was a justifiable not guilty. I mean, there was no way, from a legal standpoint, that he should have been convicted. He shouldn't have been prosecuted. Um, not that I condone a 17-year-old taking a semi-automatic weapon or an automatic weapon and going to be, you know, a self-proclaimed you know, safety patrol there. But again, the media is responsible, as are our representatives who issued these almost uh, inciting uh, social media posts who clearly didn't follow the trial, like our great governor who issued something suggesting that it was a miscarriage of justice or that it involved black people at all. I, there were no black people involved in the case. There, there was such a disconnect. I mean, how irresponsible of Wheeler's aid or Governor Brown's aid to draft a statement where they clearly did not follow the trial because most of the people that are doing this are attorneys and any attorney, regardless of where you are politically, 
any attorney would look at that case who watched the trial would say that was illegitimate, not guilty, and and question whether or not the kids should have been prosecuted at all. Yeah, I don't know if Wheeler ever practiced, but Wheeler has, you know, Wheeler's pedigree is absolutely incredible. It's it's Ivy after Ivy. I mean, if, if you could weird science a, a genius, you'd weird, the bizarre part is you'd weird science Ted Wheeler and his actual persona and performance is so at odds with his CV. It's, um, it's bizarre, although I think, I, and, and Brown obviously practiced, she was a family lawyer, Governor Brown, but I, th- I think that what's interesting about Wheeler is a lot of people who um, are sort of anti-elite, more, more people who would go for p- more populist candidates like Bernie or, or Trump, I think a lot of those people and probably a lot of our listeners are thinking, well, Ted Wheeler's an elitist and he's an idiot. I mean, just because, you know, you went to Columbia or Stanford or, or some Ivy League school doesn't mean that, that you're a great politician. It just means that you're an elite. And generally, I think a lot of them would say the elites are to be distrusted because they're not one of us. No, he, he announced his candidacy by parachuting into the city. And I did that not know that. Elite. <laughs> yeah, that was that. He had a whole uh, planned event with the media there, where he parachuted in to say, "I'm." It, it, I mean, how disconnected can you be from from reality? And so it's you know when you're. When your family is named after a county, and when you go to Ivy League schools, it's really easy to embrace these policies that have no impact on your life, um, and that don't work. Because, you know, what what did he do when people started showing up at his condo? He just moved, because he could. Yeah, although I will say, I'm very surprised that he has not clamped down or more substantively reversed this defund the police garbage. And I know the Antifa people will say, we didn't defund the police, he didn't want to defund the police, he wasn't pro-defunding the police. But he was, I mean, regardless of what he was saying about defunding the police, he was allowing the city to burn he was telling Trump not to send in the National Guard. He was allowing our federal courthouse to be assaulted and our, st- our then state courthouse up on 4th. It's now been moved closer to the waterfront, but when it was on 4th to be assaulted, literally every single night, the Justice Center with the jail, the prisoners out was set on fire. He was just sort of allowing all this to happen. And what's interesting is um, I spoke with, and I haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, but... I met and spoke with a woman who has a very young family, really little kids, like toddler age, um, who lived in his, was renting in his building at the time his building was set on fire. And she said it was extremely traumatic. She said she thought they were being, it, a bombing was happening because the parking garage was filled with SWAT team members 
And they didn't come out to the last minute. I mean, at the point where lives were like seriously in danger and the fire was really going, that's when they come out and the whole thing was, the whole thing came to a roaring stop. It never should have been able to go on as long as it was. But they were all apparently in her parking garage. And she said they were up on a very high floor, their unit was, and a firework shattered their windows. And I can't imagine, I mean, the way she was talking about it, I, I was, felt trauma just listening to it. I don't know how they lived through that, but for, for Ted Wheeler to just move, move, and then just kind of keep going business as usual. And I know he's made like a few rhetorical moves where he said, he said, you know, this has to stop and these people have to be arrested, but he's, I mean, I don't think anybody really believes that he means that. Um, he's clearly not continuing to not do anything about it. I mean, it's not like he's, there were Rittenhouse riots. It's not like, um, you know, he, he told everybody, to, he told the police to stand down when the Proud Boys came to town and Antifa was clearly coming out. So he's not, he's not putting his money where his mouth is to the extent he's mouthed anything at all. But what's strange to me is that he also lived through that and he was the target of it. And if I were him, I would have been terrified. I would have been afraid for my life. I think there were people in that crowd that wanted to kill him. Absolutely. I mean, wh why is he not telling the police? I mean, this could, this whole Antifa thing, the fact that you have to use a fake identity and that you can't disclose who you are, that's not normal. Right. That doesn't happen in, that doesn't happen in other cities. The fact that it's accepted that if you identify yourself and you say something that is anything but far left, you are going to get professionally attacked personally attacked, your children's safety is going to be at risk. Why is, why are they not just doing something about it? All he has to do is have a confidential meeting with one of the deputy chiefs and say, listen, we're going to start sending a message. I want you to go in and arrest every time there's one of these riots, which are not protests, by the way. Um, th these people don't have a lot of power and influence. The reason that they're allowed to do what they do is because nobody is stopping them. I don't, I don't understand it. I, when you have an activist mayor who has an agenda, who doesn't need the income or the job, you, this is what you get. I mean, this is where we're at and why our city charter is so messed up. None of the people on the current city council are qualified to run a city the size of Portland. They have huge jobs. They oversee huge amounts of money. They don't have training and experience in policy. But like what kind of training and experience would you like to see? Well, I'd like to see a city manager who they rely on to implement policy, um, like you see in other cities. Yeah. I don't think having a mayor who, who may have some managerial experience and certainly an Ivy education, but that he's the head of the police department is lunacy. Um, I think Joanne Hardesty is incredibly unqualified to be in the position she's in. I don't think she has the training or experience. I, don't, I think Mingus Maps is, I think, the best of the lot. And I think he's 
the most pragmatic uh, currently, which I appreciate. He is so disappointing, though. He was behind that park ranger garbage. He was behind that policy where they were going to turn a bunch of the police duties over to the park rangers. Oh, right. I forgot about that. Well, um, understandably. I mean, you, you want to go into a coma and forget he was even involved in that. He was, like, rolling it out in press conferences. It's also, I mean... What happened to him? Portland, <laughs> I don't... Portland defines, you know, when you hear people on the right talking about uh, the elite and only caring about, you know, elite issues on the... Portland totally endorses that. Uh, there's such a disconnect. It's, it's people that are, you know, they have ideologies that, that don't matter to their lives, but they're not living on a street where people are pooping in front of their house and shooting up. Uh, and so, of course, they love the idea of defund the police. They love the idea of decriminalizing drugs because the aftermath of it doesn't but isn't it strange to you that, again, like, I, I mean, Ted Wheeler and Dan Ryan must be robots. That's all I can come up with, because if I were Dan Ryan, I would be terrified. Those people outside of your house over and over and over again, defacing your house, destroying your house, disrupting your family, waking up your children. Oh, I think it was under 10 times, but it was at least seven um, so horrific and disruptive and scary and Ted Wheeler's condo being set on fire and feeling like your life is in danger and then you're in charge but you continue to sit back and allow this to go on. I mean, it just blows my mind. So why do you think Ryan's running again? Ego? Yeah, I think he's, he, I think he's gotten a lot of stroking my guess is from Adams because of the article we've talked about before on the podcast from Willamette Week, and we'll link to it again in the show notes, where Adams and Wheeler came up with this genius evil plan to move all the homeless out of downtown in a bid to get the law firms and their employees to come back and... and re-establish a space in the commercial buildings that have been vacated because you know they held a they, they held a meeting on zoom and said well we want you all to come back and the managing partner said we're not coming back and it's not because of covid we're not coming back and our employees aren't coming back to spend money because it's scary and nobody wants to come to work nobody wants to witness all these people in their trauma and deal with the, the crime and the window smashing and the property damage. Nobody, you know, you can't carry insurance anymore and we just don't want to, we don't want to do it and, and our employees don't want to have to step over human poop and needles every day. And then, you know, they caucused and Wheeler, Wheeler and Adams came up with this plan to move all the homeless out of downtown into the Portland's neighborhoods. <laughs> and... And they're all being moved in via this safe rest shelter system. And we've linked to the ordinance before. We'll link to it again. But they're moving the worst of the worst into these safe rest shelters. And that's their dirty little secret, that that's the referral. The way that you get into the safe rest shelter is that you're the worst of the worst. You're committing the most crimes. You're engaging in the most 
blatant drug activity you're leaving needles everywhere you're outright thievery and not that i mean for the city to step in at all you can imagine how bad it must be and those are the people when the city steps in that are getting referred to the safe quote unquote safe rest shelters which are really just glorified tent camps i don't care what i don't care how many times dan ryan tries to gaslight me by telling me they're not tents i mean they're pods made of plywood with tenting over them um well and so that's it and here's here's my and and by the way you're the one that told me about the ordinance i'm so grateful that you did because like everyone else in this city this is an important point because dan ryan and the rest of the city leadership has been completely lying to portland in their press conferences and their press releases by saying that only people that get referrals from social service agencies will go into these villages. So you're thinking, right, the single mom... Well, I don't know that he's lying. I got to stop you. I don't know that he's lying. He's using the word referral, which is the word used in the ordinance, and it is plausible that the people making the referrals are social service agencies because they're probably central city concern, which is the contractor they work with, to deal with these homeless camps. And so I don't know... I think, you know, it's just slimy politician garbage. I think he... You know, l literally, is he is he lying? Is that not the language of the ordinance? Oh no, that's the language of the ordinance. But you're right; he's implying a he's he's implying a lie that we all want to believe. He's he when we hear that, we want to believe that it's a it's it's a referral of someone who's doing the work, who wants to be sober, who who right. wants a job who wants to live in a, as a functional adult. Right. When you well, hear the word yeah, referral, yeah. you think, oh wow, right. this is single mom working five jobs. Yeah, that's, that's I, I, I guess what I should say is that they've been very misleading because I was certainly under the oppression until you sent me the ordinance that people that you just described, the people that are being case managed, they're getting services, are the ones that are going to be moved into these villages. Everybody and does. And, and so my question is, so what's their plan for moving the hot, if the high impact campers are willing to go, and that's anyone's guess, of what's course the plan they're not. for after, for, for preventing people from coming back to all of the spots that are all over the city. None, right? I mean, do they have any plan to have, because it's a lot cheaper to hire armed security, private security. I have a guy, I got a guy that owns a big company. This is what he does. All his guys are trained and licensed by DPSST. All they need to do is, is contract with these companies to have 24-hour security at the postal post office or you know, wherever, the guy that owns it, great guy. And so they do, his company does things like, um, it, like the beer, uh, like the, the big events, like pre-COVID, the uh, festivals, but they also provide security for uh, government offices. And so wouldn't you think that if Ryan's plan is to get these camps out of downtown, to have, uh, okay, well, what are we going to do to stop people from coming back? But I haven't seen any plan. Oh, they're not. I mean, 
There isn't one. It's just you you refer them to this safe rest shelter and they go or not and it's all at their own volition because the city won't make anybody do anything. And because all the none of the money is being spent on shelters. The money is all being spent on these safe rest zones within neighborhoods, these glorified encampments, and they're not being spent on shelters. And according to Wheeler, when Laurelhurst was being cleared over and over again, there was shelter space. So under that Ninth Circuit ruling, I mean, right now there's a Ninth Circuit ruling that says if you don't have enough shelter space, you cannot compel people to stop camping. You, and that makes sense. You have to have somewhere for them to go. You can't just rip them off a sidewalk and not have anywhere for them to go. And according to Wheeler, there, there at least was, as of last summer, shelter space for people to go. Um, maybe not, I know in subsequent articles that we've talked about on the podcast, there um, people have complained that there's not a lot of space in East Portland, but there's, pl- according to the police and a lot of these contractors that work with these encampments, there is plenty of space in uh, inner Southwest, like downtown, really. And so if we were willing to get people downtown to compel them to go downtown, we could fill these shelters. The, the problem is they're, they, we're not willing to compel them to do anything, and they're ser- these are service-resistant people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be living in a tent. They would be using the billions of dollars of services that we have for them. My understanding is that there, and and I can say this anecdotally, there is shelter, there are shelter beds available right now. Um, How many stories do we have to see where either the city's outreach people or the media have interviewed campers all over the city who flat out will tell you they won't go to a shelter because yeah. they don't want to abide by any conditions. That's right. They want to do and their drugs. The, right. And so these are the people that we're going to move into these into neighborhoods. Yeah. We're going to move them into your neighborhood. We're going to move them in. We're going to move and them into Multnomah Village. With no conditions. I mean, they, the city proudly tells you that it's a low barrier. What that means is that you don't have to be sober. You don't have to like not have needles and meth on you how how is that going to be any different because the city's running it and how long realistically is it going to last i mean how how do they expect to have staff willing to risk their lives and endure what is sure to come not to mention the fact that it's optional so People don't have to go from the high-impact camps into the villages. It's only if they want to go. It is asinine. I, I can't I, I can't believe the income. You and I, in a month, I believe, could solve more problems that this city is facing than our leaders could solve it. Can I tell you a story about Sam Adams? Please. Who apparently is now in charge of a lot of this. Uh, so... When Charlie Hales was mayor, and the, I would say, the aggressive camping vibe started happening in Portland, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, where it was really becoming, and it's been happening for 20 years, but it was starting to get where people were pooping 
on the sidewalk and needles and all of that. A friend of mine who is very influential and who owns a building and a company in an area of Portland that ha- is, I would say, high impact campers are, she got so fed up that she paid for a professional uh, video to be made of what her employees were dealing with day in and day out. Can we find this? Do you know if it's publicly available? It was sent to uh, the then mayor, so I would think that it would be available via public records request. Okay, but it's not like, as far as you know, it's not like on YouTube or anything? I don't think so. Okay, do you, are Um, you comfortable saying what area this was in? In the North Park blocks. Okay, yeah, and that was a notorious area for open air drug markets and open open crime and prostitution and sex and. Yes, and right where a uh, Portland Charter or Portland Special Focus School was, I, I think it's called Emerson. Yeah. So this was happening in front of kids, like day in and day out. So, I think because of the quality of this video she made and because of her, you know, stature. Uh, she was invited to uh, a meeting with the city council and for whatever reason she had asked me to attend. It was the craziest disconnect. Most of the people that were there are no longer on the city council, but I remember Amanda Fritz, who clearly didn't get the agenda of what the meeting was about. The first thing she said was, our public parks are the last bastion of freedom for everybody. It was just, it was like, what? But one of the deputy chiefs of the Portland police was in this meeting and him and my friend became friends and he asked her to meet individually and she asked me to come along. I, I don't know why, but it was fascinating. So when the occupy you remember the Occupy Portland thing? How could I forget? Downtown? And I don't do you know when do you remember when that was? Was it like, like Occupy Portland began in uh, 2011. Okay, that that sounds that sounds right, um, and so and I, I have to add like in normal times those parks are like in the fall my favorite like, they're so beautiful now they're still uh, fenced with camps all around them yeah um, Chapman and Lounsdale yeah I know most people haven't been downtown in a while but I will tell you don't believe people saying that it's fine it's not fine um, and so. This movement happened, and of course, Portland being Portland, it quickly became uh, completely out of control. And the police were given a very specific stand-down order. They were not allowed to go in, even after there was a woman who was forcibly raped by a stranger. This wasn't like an allegation of, you know, uh, he said, she said, or we drank too much. This was someone who, who, uh, who raped a stranger. There was a child abduction event there it was I recall that out of control. I recall that uh, the police were were repeatedly I mean the, the chiefs would go time and time again to Adams and say we've got to do something this is out of control he was so in love with the idea of the Occupy movement which goes to my point that we should not have activists making policy that he said no time and time again what and and I would welcome Sam Adams to deny this because I know that it's the truth because I heard it directly from someone who was there. What finally got him to break up the camp 
was that he had a high-level aide that showed up at City Hall early one morning, but before everyone got to work, like 6.30 or 7, and there was a couple having sex on the steps of City Hall, and she lost it. She freaked out. She said to him, but fuck you, I quit. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast, but... Sure, she, go for it. She, she went... That's what got him. Only It was only a self-serving reason. He didn't want to lose this chief, this top aide. That's the only reason that got him to do what he was supposed to do. And this is the guy that now has been tasked with dealing with our homeless problem. Like, what is going on? And I want Sam, Sam Adams, who, putting aside the other part of that story, he, he owes the city an apology. I mean, he, and he owes the woman that was raped an apology. One of the dumbest things that the city council agreed to do because of Hardesty's uh, insistence was to take away the the gang unit. I don't. It's like right. the BRT, whatever they're called. It was decided every, that the gang unit was racist. Every major city in the country, not even a major city, minor cities, every city in the country that has any kind of gang presence has a unit like this. Why? Not so that they can arbitrarily pull black men over. It's so that they can stop homicide and they can detour uh, gang violence. And these are the guys, and I know some of them. Hey, Jennifer, what do you say to the people to to the people who say a common refrain in defund the police, Antifa, BLM circles is police don't stop crime. And, and they will, there is, they do have some data for that. What, what do you say to that? I say it's complete bullshit. I mean, look at LA. <laughs> look at the late 80s and the 90s of where the gang situation in LA was the worst that it ever been. It was trained police officers who knew every gang member. They knew their mothers. They knew their fathers. They knew their fiancés. It's the same thing in Portland. There are, there are police officers and I get it. There are some bad police officers. I totally get that. There are some bad everything. There are some bad firefighters. And I, I realize that law enforcement attracts a certain sort of mentality. A lot of guys that go into law enforcement come from the military, and so they're, they, they're in that headspace. But I can tell you personally that the people that were the gang unit in Portland were largely responsible for preventing a lot of homicides and for getting ceasefires by gang members and getting gang members to not do things and to mentoring them. And I know a gang cop who is famous for bringing food to the mother's homes who have lost kids to gang violence. That's what she disbanded. That's why we have a record, the record homicides that we've had in the past year because they're not allowed to do their job anymore. I, I don't want to um, dox you or anything, but I, I want to understand how you know, have come to personally know this. Do you, is it, do you have a profession where it would enable you to know that that is in fact what this gang unit did, that it did in fact stop homicides. Yes. Okay, that's helpful. Unequivocally, I will say that I had a firsthand knowledge 
and I have interacted, and I'm not, I, I want to be clear, I'm not in law enforcement. I am not social friends with any police officers. I have never been to a party with a police officer, um, but I am in a profession where I have routinely interacted with men and women who serve in a variety of ways. Um, also, I mean, uh, Antoinette, I can't remember her name, but this amazing woman, um, I, you should have her on the show sometime, Karen, because she is, she lost a child to gang violence and she has dedicated her life, uh, to stopping gang violence. Yeah. I'd and love I to have her on. She's a black woman. I would guess, I don't want to speak for her, that she would be the first to tell you that disbanding this unit was a terrible mistake that she understood that the men and women that were in this unit they were devoted to do to like doing the right thing to stopping uh these kids from killing each other what is hardesty doing to stop these kids from killing each other what what is she doing what is she going to the funerals of these boys and they're boys they're 16 year olds they're 14 year olds that are dying on the street what is she doing other than talking well, and calling 911 when an Uber driver offends her? And the, the dirty little secret, right, is that a lot of them are black. A, lo a lot of these homicide victims are black. And, and, and they're being indiscriminately gunned down. And she's not doing anything about it. In fact, she... It sounds like you, from your personal experience, she disbanded the very people who were doing something about it. That's absolutely right. And I, I sent an email to the city council uh, and included in part that because I was so frustrated. I was, I'm so, my I have elderly parents. My dad is in his 90s and they live in the city and they like to be out and about. And I'm worried about them. And I sent an email talking about a lot of things, but one of the things I talked about was their decision to disband the gang unit, and of course no one responded to me. Um, I, I, it's like Hardesty wants to convince people that everything is driven by race. And I, if we all come into things with our own implicit bias. I completely agree with that. I mean, I have a girlfriend who's black, and we talk about this all the time. I'm a middle-aged, overweight white woman, and every time in my entire life that I have gone into a restaurant or a coffee shop that has a sign that says, uh, you can't use the bathroom unless you buy something, not once when I go in and say, is there any way I could use the bathroom? Not once has anyone ever said no to me. Every time she has, she's my age, every time she has gone in to a restaurant or coffee shop with the same question, she's been told no. Yeah. I totally understand that racism is real in this country, but I will not buy the fact that what Hardesty says, that police officers in Portland are motivated by racism. That's bullshit. That's reckless. You're in a profession where you would know this information. Is that true? You're not just yes. like speaking, you're not just engaging in conjecture and talking out of your ass here. This is, this is your, part of your profession is to know this information, this data. For 25 years. Yes. 20, okay. Not only in Portland, but before I 
moved home, I, I lived in a much bigger city where I was in a profession that worked with gang members and gang members' families. So I think I feel comfortable saying that this, I have firsthand knowledge, professional experience saying this. Um, and I, so I think if, if any Portlander understood that if you're, and I don't know the verbiage for cars, I don't know anything about cars, but when, you know, when you are going to drive in a car and you don't have, and your, and your plates are expired and it's a very sort of flashy, visible car and you're blasting music or whatever it is. Um, but more so if your plates are expired or if you're driving recklessly, I think everyone would agree that you're more likely to get pulled over. Um, so in my profession and in my dealings with other people in my profession, I have learned a lot or experienced a lot about gang culture and so on. And I mean, like, for example, disconnect between hardesty defending the police and what the vast majority of black portlanders say they don't want to defund the police not just portland this has happened in every other city because yeah there's data to support rely on a police presence the most are people that live in disenfranchised community and people of color um so the people that are harmed the most when we take away the police i personally and God have been minimally impacted by the fact that we have no police presence in Portland right now because of where I live, uh, where my job is. But the people that need police the most are the ones that are being harmed. Hardesty is hurting the very people that she says she is helping. And those same people will publicly speak out and say, you know, whoa, we didn't say we wanted to come. It's all these white people saying that. Um, do I believe in police reform? Absolutely. Do I think that there are situations where we don't need a police presence, where it makes more sense to have mental health professionals? Absolutely. But the reality is there are some instances where we need trained police officers, especially police officers who have a very skilled ability to connect and work with young men who are involved in gangs. And that is a totally different animal than other kinds of criminal activity. Um, I had a meeting with a guy who was formerly one of these gang unit guys who is, uh, can I say his name or no? Sure. Uh, his name is Officer Ashheim. He is intent, he has chosen to stay an officer, not be promoted to detective or upwards. He's chosen not to go on a management path because he is committed 100% to helping these kids and to preventing uh, more violence. And why are we why are we taking him away from a job that he is really good at and he really cares about these people? And so when Hardesty says, says cops aren't here to prevent crime, what is she talking about? I mean, it's, it's asinine. And in fact, I because mean, that, you've talked about what's going on in your neighborhood, you were banned from next door. Is that right? About the homeless yes, I encampment? Was, I was banned, for, arbitrarily banned from next door. <laughs> tell, like, again, tell me about it's that. It's happened multiple times. <laughs> um, so for those that don't know, next door is this national website that you, uh, to, to join, you have to, 
prove that you live wherever you live and then you're identified with a neighborhood, but you can post things that are also sent out to other neighborhoods. So if you're, the best example is if you lose power and you wanna know if it's a city-wide thing or a neighborhood or if it's just your house, you can post and say, did anyone else lose power? Or if you're selling something, you can, or if you're giving away something for free. Um, so next door apparently has, have people that sign up to be admins, moderators, I don't know what the term is, uh, who, who live in, in various Portland neighborhoods, who apparently can arbitrarily make the decision uh, whether or not something you say is offensive to them and suspend you, which is what just happened to me the other day. So in other words, it's not like oh, you violated our terms of service. These are our, ter- like YouTube, like you, you're quoting copyrighted material and you're not allowed, you're, you're reposting a song and you're not allowed to do that. This is more, the way Nextdoor works, you're telling us, which I didn't know, the way Nextdoor works is um, somebody ends up in charge. I don't know exactly how you end up able to be a moderator, but somebody ends up able to be a moderator and they, that person is able to just determine who they want to ban for how long and why based on their own subjective whims. Yeah, so I mean, I'll tell you what my crime was. I'm in a group, there, you can have uh, private groups on next door that are devoted to whatever cause, your Portland Timbers group or, so this particular group, which I didn't create, um, is devoted to trying to solve the problem of the overwhelming homeless presence in Portland and what that has led to. Uh, so everybody in this group is there for the same reason. And my post was about reading the ordinance, the uh, Safe Rest Village ordinance that you told me about and learning that the plan is to move high impact campers into the villages and what a disastrous idea that is. And for that, I was suspended for two weeks uh, because it doesn't conform with Nextdoor's policies. But they refuse to tell me what those policies are. Um, They also refuse to tell me who makes the decisions about, like, the length of suspension, what I can do to appeal. I have an acquaintance who was suspended for using the term junkie, which is that you can't freely share ideas or feelings in Portland anymore without worrying about losing your career, being publicly shamed, losing your friends. That's what it's become. I would never, all the things that you and I are discussing right now, I would never ever talk about with any friend that I have in Portland because they would think I was the worst person in the world. Wow. So you don't have a single friend that you feel comfortable confiding in? They live in in suburbs. The only people that I can talk freely about live in Lake Oswego, Westland, um, outside of the city. Uh, But when the Occupy thing was happening, and I I think I posted on Facebook, like, what's going on? When are they going to deal with the parks? A friend replied, quote, unquote, jokingly, 
It's so fun to see our girl becoming a Republican. Anything you say that is not in line with far-left policy in Portland, you automatically are labeled a Trumper. And I am anything but a Trumper. And I will never support Trump, ever, ever, ever in a million years. Um, but because there is no critical thinking in the city, there's no nuance, no nuance. And because people are encouraged to do the opposite of think critically, I mean, I don't ever want you, Karen, to ever disclose who you are. I would worry about your safety day and night. And, and I, my change is like yours. I mean, I, I think we both, well, we're both natives, right? We both right. consider ourselves our whole lives to be uber liberal, uber progressive. I've never voted for Republican in my life. I go to the Planned Parenthood luncheon proudly every year. It's like the mask thing, right? In Portland, it's like, okay, well, Governor Brown says that we have to wear masks again. There's no questions asked. There's no like, okay, wait a minute, why? Like, we pretty much got this thing under control. Masks don't work. It's none of that. It's just like, that's the way it's supposed to be. And I think this um, philosophy of following the status quo, I Israel's a good example. It, it's popular. People say, oh, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm anti-Israel. Well, no, it's just veiled anti-Semitism because there are countless countries all over the world with similar, you know, evolutions that have never, you know, not to mention the fact that the media portrays the conflict in a totally skewed way. But um, I, I do wonder, I do wonder how many people are at a place now where they, you know, my husband and I always say that, you know, we sit and, you know, rant to each other because it's not safe to talk about the stuff outside of our, our home. And I do wonder how prevalent that is now with people that in their private lives, um, with people they trust, they are more comfortable speaking out. They're talking about this you know, hidden undercurrent of racism everywhere and the police are just looking to be racist and it, it's just, it's not there. And hardest I gotta say, I mean, I don't know if people know this, but when she was running, she did these really crazy things like her opponent at the time, Loretta Smith, had had a situation of sexual harassment by a guy that was in, I don't remember exactly, but in public life, something, it became a public thing, and it was something that was traumatic for her. So Hardesty intentionally has this guy be like the MC at a charity event. Or oh something. my God, I didn't know. How did you learn about this? Oh, it was it was public. I mean, it wasn't, the news, the, the paper didn't make it a bit, but there are articles about it. You can find it. Okay, wow. Yeah, if we find those, um, we'll link to those in the show notes. That's amazing. Thank you. 
No, even even Nick Kristoff, when he came to write about the who's running for governor of Oregon, when he came to write about the riots, he the title of his article was "I Can't Find Trump's Anarchists in Portland," and and the whole crux of the article was Portland's fine. Uh, yeah, every once in a while it gets out of control and there's some violence, but generally it's great and it's fine. And look at this wall of moms and the leaf blower dads, and these people are really here to do some good. And when I, he he had been a personal hero of mine for years, really, prior to that article coming out. I mean, possibly, certainly over a decade, maybe two decades. But you know, I read his columns religiously. I bought all his books. I paid money to hear him speak. I, I subscribed and read his face, his and Cheryl Wu Dunn, his, his wife, Facebook feeds. And uh, back when you know Facebook was wasn't um, was more user friendly and wasn't as insane as it is now, filled with angry rants from grandmothers in all caps and Russian bots. Um, and he was just. I just found him to be absolutely incredible and super insightful. And then when he wrote that article and was telling me to disbelieve what I was seeing on a daily basis, just living here and working downtown where these things were going on with my own eyes and getting photos and updates from court staff who worked at that Hatfield District Courthouse, Knowing what was going on and then reading that art, his opinion article in the New York Times infuriated me. And I will never vote for him as governor because of that. Because of, because of what? Because his failure to, to, because of his failure to tell the truth about what was going on here. He had a narrative. He showed up with a narrative and he wrote an article with, he wrote an article to support his narrative. He was gaslighting all of us who live here. Yeah. I can't find the anarchists? Jesus Christ. How long does it have to go on? It went on. It's still happening. The, the Rittenhouse riot. It, the, the Rittenhouse quote-unquote protest. It went on every night for months. That federal courthouse was on fire. You're kidding me? You can't find Trump's anarchists? Are you high, sir? Oh my God. And instead he was tweeting out shit like, I'm so upset by this verdict. He was basically setting it all up. He was setting, he was setting up the riots. Numbers and we need 
I mean, maybe we need a cohesive group that is created just for this purpose. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, right now I feel like the best way is just to create a platform where I can educate people and about good candidates like Renee Gonzalez and Betsy Johnson and promote them um, and hope that some people listen and pay attention. Um, the good news is yeah. Betsy has received the most not, uh, donations so far yes. for political campaigns as far as the gubernatorial candidates are concerned. And Frank, although Kristoff has begun to speak real talk about what's going on in Oregon, like for instance, he talked about how we've had more drug deaths in Oregon than we have had COVID deaths. And yet here we all are walking around with a mask on. Still, we're still walking around with it on outside, even though that outdoor mandate's lifted. As far as public schools are concerned, all the kids are wearing it outside. The kids are masked indoors all day. We're, adults are masked indoors all day. Um, you know, they're, they're, the vaccine mandates are happening. Where is the urgency around the drug issue? <laughs> More people have, are dying of drugs. It's, our response to that is to decriminalize the drugs, period. That's our response. Yeah, I mean, there have been multiple. So, well, the other thing is that I, it infuriates me. So if anyone in the city is listening, the fact that city employees are not back to work, that they expect the rest of us to go downtown. Wait, tell me about this. Tell me about it city employees. I don't know about this. Tell me about this. Oh, the, the city city employees are still not back in their desks, still working remotely. The entire, all of the city employees, which I would assume is also the city leaders and the city council, they're not they're not back to work. There are no city employees. Literally every department. Are you serious? I'm serious. <laughs> and they, and they have not announced a date, a return date. There's no. And so, and they're trying to get the law honest. firms to come back and spend, spend money downtown. Right. Yeah, come shopping, spend your business in Portland, and and they're not, and there are no city employees. If there were city employees, and I would guess there's like thousands of city employees. Oh, there must be. There is, you know, there's safety in numbers, right? I will tell you when I have to go downtown, and I have to go down to, I have to go downtown a lot, and I have to go to an area of downtown where there is a big tent presence. I either, I look like a weirdo. I either fast walk or I run. Yeah. You also have a colleague who was attacked on her lunch break in broad daylight downtown. Where there are no city employees back to work. And, and Wheeler will not say when they're gonna come back to work. Who was attacked by, um, an un, let's just say an unwell person. Arbitrary. There was no. There was no conflict. Like it, she didn't see it coming, and the person broke her femur. She had to have surgery. She was in the hospital for over a week, and is going to be recovering for months. Well, there yeah, I, I heard about that. It's it's really really sketchy during the day downtown. I not. I can't even imagine what. The night I didn't night know was. she wrote an op-ed in the Oregonian. I'll link to that in the show notes. I'll send it to you. I'll find it. She wrote, and she's a much kinder person than I am because it was very, I mean, the sentiment was, well, we can do better than this. It wasn't, it wasn't a, it well, was a very generous uh, thing that she said. 
That's an op-ed worth reading, and it's something we'll link to in our show notes. Jennifer, we should wrap this up, but I have to thank you so much for coming on the show and for telling us about your experience with gang violence reduction units, your experience in the way the police help stop and solve crime, particularly homicides, your experience uh, in working in areas of community policing, your experience with private security forces as a force for good in a city that is full of lawlessness and in a city that has defunded its police. So thank you so much. Of course. I am so grateful to you. As someone who loves this city, who was born and raised here, you know, who's my dad is a second generation Portlander. Like I love this city and you're doing a really big service. Making no money, getting no benefit, risking Antifa. So I really appreciate you a lot. Thank you so much. I appreciate you too, and I'm so glad that you came on and we'll have to set up another date. So that was Jennifer. We really appreciate her coming on. We hope she comes back. In the meantime, if you like what you hear on this podcast, tell a friend. Give us a good rating on iTunes. It really does help people find the podcast. If you would like to get into contact with us, we are on Walla Moms Pod on Twitter. You can feel free to send us a direct message there. We've received a lot of really good feedback from the podcast on Twitter and via our direct messages and a lot of really good constructive critical feedback. Most recently, we have been uh, receiving communications from Twitter handle Rose City Outrage. Rose City Outrage says, please consider running for office. We need moderate leadership in Salem and simply cannot reelect Maxine Dexter or Lisa Reynolds. Our city is under attack. How is it democracy to vandalize, threaten, intimidate, and attack citizens? Third world country revolutionary tactics are being deployed in our own city. I explained to Rose City Outrage that due to exactly what they're describing, due to uh, Dan Ryan's house being vandalized at least seven times with impunity and Wheeler's condo being set fire, I have absolutely no interest in running for city office or being any kind of part of city office because I won't be able to vote how I want to and live in peace. Uh, Because in this city, if you do something that the far left doesn't like, they will engage in violence and they will harass you and they will destroy your property and they will disrupt your family life. I mean, they're not content with sending emails and making calls to City Hall. They will show up at your house and deface it and set fire to it. You are putting your own personal safety at risk. I find it implausible to believe that their tactics in regard to Commissioner Ryan and Mayor Wheeler would not have extended to Ryan and Wheeler's person um, and and that of their family, i.e., I... I think if I were Mayor Wheeler and my condo had been set on fire, I would would have feared for my own life. And that's not something I'm interested in subjecting myself to. Rose City Outrage said, I understand your thinking. As a PDX native, I pray it will get better, but my gut and history tells me it's irreparable and our best days are behind us. Thank you for what you do. God bless you. 
Thank you, Rose City Outrage. And if anybody else wants to contact us on Twitter, that would be wonderful. Again, you can find us at Walla Moms Pod. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. Be sure to tell a friend. And this is your girl, Karen, signing off. See you next time.